Off the Record, the weekly KOTO public affairs show that offers you, the listener, an opportunity to hear in-depth conversations on community topics and issues that matter. As always, you are encouraged to join the conversation by calling 728-4333. Now here's your host. Good evening, Kodo listeners. This is Matt Hoyst from the Kodo News team. Welcome to another installment of Off the Record. You know, I think one thing that most people living in Telluride, the Telluride region, will realize, will say without blinking an eye, is that it is near impossible to talk about our region without talking about wealth. It is it is almost inextricable from Telluride, Mountain Village, San Miguel County in 2021. And I think what they might, maybe they'll say, maybe they won't say this actually, but this is something I feel, is that it's also strangely difficult to talk about wealth. There's weird difficulties about it, about wealthy people, about the idea of wealth. I just think it is an interesting, complicated topic that we should not take for granted as something that is simple, which is why I am really excited um, for our show tonight. We are joined by two scholars who have thought a lot about these issues in different ways and i hope listeners that you take a lot out of this conversation because i'm very excited for it we are joined first by rachel sherman she is a professor and the chair of sociology at the new school for social research and recently in 2017 the author of uneasy street the anxieties of affluence rachel thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me Also joining us is Justin Farrell, an associate professor of sociology at Yale University and the author of the 2020 book, Billionaire Wilderness. And if his name sounds familiar, he was literally just in Telluride for Mountain Film, but he had to leave yesterday. So he's joining over Zoom. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we start, I do have to say there is a fair degree of kismet in all of this because when um, Rachel, I reached out to you a while ago about doing this show, and, and we weren't able to do it for scheduling reasons. Um, but you had actually, Rachel, suggested you should reach out to this guy Justin Farrell, who wrote this book that is also pretty relevant. And I thought, well, okay. And then <laughs> when we were putting together this show, I realized Justin, you had also been booked um, for Mountain Film. So I think that is absolute um, a wonderful coincidence. That means we're doing things the right way, and. Um, well, I'm going to get into both of your books in just a moment, um, but both of them broadly are are about really wealthy people and trying to understand them from a sociological, ethnographic perspective in different ways. But even before we do that, I, I think it's so important to just ground this conversation in what we mean by wealth, um, by which I mean, c- can you... I mean, Rachel, I know you said you'd actually looked up these numbers before, so maybe you're the best one to speak to this. Um, I'm just so curious. What do we mean when we say wealthy folks and how what's the breakdown in the United States of of income? What income puts you in the 50th percentile of of the income distribution? What is that breakdown and how can we understand what money actually means? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really critical question. I mean, what we mean by wealth, you know, generally we mean all kinds of things by it. And I think it is important to be precise. I think often when we talk about the wealthy, we imagine that we're talking about the super wealthy, right? So the basically the 0.1% of the 1%, the 0.1%, like the, you know, the very, very top. And it's sometimes surprising to hear the actual numbers, which as you said, I mean, they do change all the time because they are percentages. So um, the top 1% of income in the U.S., I mean, it's a little bit, it's not entirely clear, but somewhere around five hundred thousand um, dollars puts you is the bottom of the top one percent. Uh, somewhere around three hundred thousand dollars is the top five percent. Somewhere around between one and two hundred thousand dollars puts you in the top ten percent. So that might seem like not that much, right, to be in the top ten percent, but that is in fact how much it takes. The median. Um, which is, you know, the the very middle, right? The number of people above and below that are equal uh, in the U.S. is somewhere in maybe sixty-eight mm-hmm. um, thousand dollars a year, and I looked it up in Colorado too. In Colorado, it's seventy-two thousand, so it's basically around seventy. So if you, this is household income, by the way. So it's everybody in the household. It's not individual income. Now that's income. It's really important when we think about wealth to think about 
wealth, <laughs> like to think about actual net worth, right? Assets, um, typically, you know, for most people, that's the value of their home if they own a home. Um, but for the wealthy, it's the value of, you know, all kinds of assets that they might have. What puts you in the top 1% in terms of wealth is something like $10 million. Uh, what puts you in the top 1% is something like $1 million. So that means, you know, 90% of the people in the U.S. have less than a million dollars in assets. And of course, there's many people who have negative wealth because they have debt of whatever kind. I'll, I'll add to, that's really helpful, Rachel. And I'll add to another way to think of it is um, how wealth is distributed. Um, and so just to kind of give you a statistic that you all may have heard is that three men own as much as the bottom half of all Americans. So Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Jeff Bezos. And so that's another way to slice it. And and the amount of wealth that's now owned by the um, very, very top has really accelerated during the pandemic. Um, I saw a statistic today that the collective wealth of, of American billionaires grew by 55% in just the last year, just the last year. So it went from about three trillion to four and a half trillion. Um, and so that's another way to think about wealth as well. Yeah, and just to, can I add one other thing? Sorry, we're just going to tell you statistics <laughs> for the whole time. Um, but I think that is really important. It's possibly more important also to note how much that's changed over time, right? So the top, the share, the percentage of wealth that's going to the top has gone up over time. The top 1% now controls something like 20% of the wealth, something like 10% of people control 50% of the income. You know, that's a lot. And it, you know, in the period that we all think of as the kind of golden age of equality in the US after, you know, the 50s and 60s, um, it was much lower. So that's a, an important thing to pay attention to. And of course, the irony here being both of your books were published before the pandemic. And so clearly, I mean, if everything has just changed, maybe everything's obsolete at this point. I don't know. Maybe we'll discuss that later on. Um, but, I, I, you know, now that we've turned off everyone by talking about a lot of numbers for the first few minutes, I'm going to do the pivot and say that your books are actually not that much about numbers. And I'm really interested in this unique decision that you both took that I think is a pretty illuminating approach. Rachel, your book, Uneasy Street, is an ethnographic study of wealthy New Yorkers really trying to understand how they think about being wealthy people and really looking at this from a social ethnographic perspective, really based in interviews, not really as much in the statistical analysis. Justin, your book has a little bit more of the statistics, you know, splattered throughout, but by and large is also a more ethnographic sociological study of wealth in Teton County in Wyoming, which I'm going to ask you to explain why you, you chose that county as part of your research. Um, in fact, I'll just ask that question actually right now for both of you. Can you just explain your reasoning? Rachel, you chose wealthy New Yorkers. Justin, you chose wealthy folk in Wyoming. Why you chose the people you chose to interview and also why you chose to look at this very numbers-based issue from a more sociological lens. Justin, we can start with you. Yeah, so I was born in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and, and much of my family is split between Cheyenne and Boise, Idaho. And and so I've long been fascinated with the ways the Western U.S. is growing and changing, you know, places like Telluride, places all around Colorado. And when I was young, I would join my mother, who she was a house cleaner, and she would clean large homes. And I think those experiences made me personally curious about wealth and class in America. And uh, we spent a lot of time as a family out in the Yellowstone area, and we would go through Jackson or Jackson Holes, it's also known. And I, as I kind of grew older and started studying in graduate school, um, I, I looked at it as a site to do research and and that's kind of where, how I settled there. And, and it's, it's become the richest county in the U.S., which is a fact that most people don't, don't know that. But um, it's, its wealth has poured in there in the last few decades. That's not dissimilar to, to places like Telluride. And so it was really close to my heart and um, something I grew up hearing about a lot, too. So, mm. And Rachel, your choice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I also just want to, I mean, I want to say one thing about Justin's work, which I think is, you know, so important is that that focus on nature and the environment, right. And the appeal of the kind of, you know, the West as a, I don't know, iconic place or whatever. Um, and I think that that's such an important 
piece of locating his work where he did. I don't know if that's, I mean, I think that was part of his motivation, not to speak for him. Um, I mean, I think for me, the reason I was interested in, in class, it's so interesting to hear Justin's um, sort of origin story too, is that I grew up in a mixed class family. I, my father's family is wealthy. My mother's family was not. And so I think because of that, my parents were divorced. So I grew up kind of in two like totally different lifestyles. Hmm. Um, and I do think it's really important for all of us to reflect on our class upbringing and, you know, how, who taught us to think about class and money the way that we do. Um, and in terms of this project, I mean, I came to it because I had written another book, which was my dissertation on luxury hotels. And I had seen that people, I'd interviewed some people who stayed at luxury hotels and they were sort of conflicted about their consumption of luxury service. And, you know, just, they weren't, you know, everybody thinks rich people are horrible, mean, obnoxious people, and these people weren't. And, so I wanted to learn more about that. And particularly, I wanted to look at the kinds of consumption and lifestyle decisions that people make when they have you know, enough money to have a lot of choices. And I did it in New York City because it was, um, I mean, I lived here as <laughs> one major reason, but also it's such an important place for concentration of you know, global wealth and lots of people who have second homes in Wyoming have, you know, first homes in, in New York, right? And then the, the reason it's more qualitative is there's, I think there's very little that numbers can tell us about lots of things, but especially cultural, you know, processes or people's identities. Um, I think that's true across the board. It's especially true for the wealthy because there are very few surveys that actually look at the wealthy because it's so hard to find them. You know, they won't respond to surveys and, and many kind of national surveys that the highest income category is like $200,000 a year, something like that. Like it's very low relative to the top 1%. So we don't even really have any numbers about these people. I'll, I'll add too, Matt, just real quick that, um, you know, until Rachel's book in 2017, and we had, we had some studies before that from the qualitative perspective, but we just didn't have a lot of scholarly research that allowed us to see life from the perspective of the ultra wealthy or the wealthy themselves and to kind of dig in from that angle and dig uh, more deeply into the culture, as Rachel mentioned. Um, and so we just need a lot more research on these topics from that perspective, from the sort of ground level, so to speak. And really quickly diving back into numbers one more time, can you both just describe the range of wealth of the folks that you interviewed? Sure. Um, yeah, uh, I'll start. The Yeah, so my people are, I think, less wealthy than Justin's people, probably on average. Um, they are in the top, almost all in the top one or two percent in terms of income and wealth or income or wealth or both. Um, so my cutoff was $250,000 in income when I started looking for people to talk to, but almost everybody I talked to was making at least twice that. Five, I mean, a $500,000 income was pretty much the lowest, um, which as you've just learned is about the cutoff for the 1%. Um, but you know, I didn't talk to any billionaires for this project. I talked to a few like 100 million, maybe one or 200 millionaires. So that's, it, there's a pretty broad range. Justin? Uh, for me, yeah, for me, I was really focused on the ultra wealthy, which is defined at or around 20 million, kind of depend on, depending who you talk to. Um, but I also interviewed, so I interviewed, you know, people who had 20 million who had, I may interviewed billionaire, um, billionaires. Um, but I also interviewed the working class and the working poor who often are employed by those people. Um, and those, those folks were often at or below the poverty line. Mm. Um, listeners, this is, of course, off the record. So if you have a question or a comment for either Justin or Rachel, give us a call, 970-728-4334. Our diligent news director, Julia Caulfield, is manning the phone line to take your calls and bring any comments or questions you have on air. Alternatively, you can also send us an email, news at koto.org. Again, any questions or comments you have for Justin or Rachel on their work around wealth, email at news at koto.org or call 970-728-4334. Um, I also have to ask, I, I guess, the obvious question that might jump up for anyone hearing this. For both of you, um, what are your thoughts on how generalizable your work is around, you know, because it's qualitative research, different than quantitative, and I think people might smirk a little bit and say, well, one person saying one thing doesn't generalize to all wealthier, ultra-wealthy people. 
Um, so as the conversation develops over the rest of the hour, how much do you think our listeners can say, well, these are what their this is what their research shows, so I can extrapolate this to be a meaning for all wealthy people? Um, Justin, do you have thoughts on that? I do. Yeah, I would say in terms of my book, which which really does focus on issues of the environment, the concept of nature, the concept of the West of the, in the United States, that it's more generalizable to people who select into this area. So you're you know, second homeowner in Telluride or your, you know, full-time resident in Telluride who might be very wealthy. Um, I did get into the culture of wealth and, and, and some of the common themes we see, you know, in all different areas of the country. Um, but I would, I would say, you know, in terms of does it apply to a billionaire or a millionaire in, you know, Houston, it might work a little differently because of, of the context and, and the really important way that nature and and western myths and and the small town western character really shapes these people's worldviews and and why they come Hmm. rachel yeah i mean i would just say i i want to push back a little bit on the concept of generalizability as a desirable thing right i think that there's a that makes it feel like science if we can say that it's generalizable and quant you know sort of more statistics oriented people will do that um but I don't think there's really anything that's generalizable about a whole, like there's nothing that I imagine to be empirically true about a, you know, every rich person in the U S except that they're rich. Right. Or like any broad category. There's, there's no, there's no, anything that's true of everybody in a category is not a super interesting thing. Right. So I think that, um, that said, you know, I think that, of the kinds of claims that I make in the book, you know, one of them is that wealthy people are not like evil <laughs> and that they, you know, they're not shallow. They're not the way that they're represented often in popular culture. Um, they're not status seeking necessarily, right? There, there's lots of different kinds of wealthy people. And that I just think is a true thing, right? More specifically that wealthy people resist a kind of stigma of being wealthy. You know, I think that's probably also true across the board generally. How they do that, I think, is going to be different. You know, so in New York, you have the people I talk to are politically relatively liberal, though there's some variation. Um, They're cosmopolitan. You know, they're really well educated. They like to travel. So they have a particular way of understanding the world that I agree. Someone in Houston or even someone in Wyoming, although sometimes the person in Wyoming is also the person in New York, um, you know, might not have. So I think it's really important to look at kind of cultures of wealth and variation among those cultures in the U.S. and internationally. Um, but I also think in general, we have to just be careful with that notion of of generalizability as if there were anything useful about, you know, some claim that can be completely made for everybody. I love it. Um, and I think the other beauty of both of your books, and I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way for any listeners, but it, I think they both also stress that wealthy people are people <laughs> in that they have these imperfect frameworks for understanding the world and their place in the world. And that some of the most interesting things in both of your books are really examining how those frameworks, the, the accuracies and inaccuracies of those frameworks, you know, conflict with the reality around them. Um, and a lot of both of your books actually are kind of about how these people justify their wealth, their affluence to themselves and, and think about their place um, in the world. Rachel, I could probably spend 10 minutes just listing all the interesting, <laughs> you have so you both have really interesting quotes in your books, I will say. But, you know, I mean, you mentioned, Rachel, some of the things you mentioned in your book from your interviews with these people, you know, these ideas of justifying wealth by saying, you know, the things I spend my money on, I don't really need those things. I could do without those things. And kind of by saying that, that means they're not a vapid wealthy person Another big idea that comes up, and I think this makes sense to a lot of people, is the idea of hard work, that I I work really, really hard. Like, I work 80-hour work weeks, and therefore it makes sense that I have a lot of money. Um, One idea that you bring up that I'd I'd love for you to expound on a bit, Rachel, is this idea of upward and downward orientations that people you interviewed had about wealth, and they were kind of two ways of thinking about being an ultra-wealthy or a wealthy person. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
Yeah, what I mean by upward and downward oriented. So people who I call upward oriented are more likely to kind of compare themselves to and talk about and think about people who are kind of in their same stratum or have more than they do. So these are people who are like, well, I don't really think that I'm wealthy or affluent because, you know, we have friends who have a private plane and that's like, those are like real affluent people. And so they, they, they're looking up at the 0.1%, you know, rather than down at the 99%. And this is facilitated by, you know, being in private schools where most other people are wealthy um, and, you know, generally having relatively homogenous social circles or networks. Down-oriented people, as you might imagine, are people who see themselves as having more, who recognize, you know, that they that they do have a lot more than other people, often because they have more diversity in their social networks. They might have jobs where they work with, you know, people of different classes, their politics are usually more progressive and so on. So they're just a little bit more aware. Now, of course, that's, you know, them talking to me, right? We can have a whole conversation about what people will say to to a researcher and what they won't. And the other thing I just wanted, I wanted to say before, and you just outlined a couple of the justifications or the, you know, the, the ways I, I, I'm, I struggle with the word justification a little bit because that sounds a little bit like fake, but I think that people really they want to be worthy of their wealth. So to imagine like I worked hard for it and I'm you know, not obnoxious and I'm a reasonable consumer and I could live without it if I had to, as you said, and I give back and you know, my kids are not obnoxious and so on and all of stuff. Um, I think those are all really important. And I, I was really gratified just on the question of generalizability to read Justin's work that where, you know, a lot of his people say similar things to that, right? They want to be normal. They think that rich people are misunderstood. They also feel themselves to be down to earth, right? Um, and they allude to some of these same things. So that's the, the fancy word we have for that in social science is triangulation, right? That he found in the people that he studied a similar thing to what I found in a different population. Hmm. Now, Justin, I would actually argue, and I'm curious if you think I'm, I'm reading this incorrectly. I mean, one of the interesting things, moments in your book, Justin, um, you had an interviewee, you know, these really wealthy people moving out to Teton County, Wyoming, and saying, we want to move here because money almost doesn't exist. You had an interviewee who said that, who said, we move out here because people here don't judge us for our wealth. No one here thinks about money. We're all just kind of salt of the earth living here in this rural world. And you pretty abruptly point out, well, you know, there's also people here at or below the poverty line who are living in really, really difficult conditions. Um, but I, I guess the interesting thing I would say is I almost would imagine that is another point on, I guess, this upward, downward oriented continuum Rachel espoused. That is, there's also like the continuum that's just that money doesn't exist, which is almost absurd. But I'm curious if you do you think that's an accurate reading of of your interviews, Justin? I do. Yeah. And I, I talk a lot about that in the second half of the book and just trying to show the, the ways that this social group um, wrestles with in response to either their entry into a new community or this maybe the social stigmas of being so wealthy. And then the extent to which, you know, they go to prove um, to themselves or to others within this context of a, of a small Western community that they aren't out of touch monsters. Um, and Oddly, though, uh, but, you know, unsurprisingly, they use this ideal type of a rural Western person um, to kind of latch on to that and um, live into that, so to speak. And this idea of, of rural poverty is, is like the ski bum and it's a romanticized Westerner that's kind of free from the snares of, of Eastern wealth and power. They're thought to live this, you know, noble life of contentment or these frontier tropes that um, are so pervasive in our culture. And, you know, they top it off with a little uh, dose of, of Western or wilderness adventure. And so this really shapes how they move through the community, um, how they see themselves as, you know, a, a quote, normal person. And I think you're alluding to a story I tell in the book about a guy named John who who made tens of millions as an oil and gas CEO. But since moving there, he's you know become a normal person and he wears Wranglers and cowboy boots. And he told me story after story of his working class friends. And he would you know, he would say, you know, I don't tell people I live in a gated community. They just kind of accept me as a local. Um, I've got airplanes and all the money and all that, but I drink beer with the guys down at the ski lifts and we're all just kind of getting along. And um, so that, and it affects the, you know, the way that they dress, what they drive, the artwork in their homes. 
and a lot of it is just tied back to these myths of of what a of of a western um person a western kind of working class person um but obviously for those who live in some of these communities those are myths you know there are ski bums and people who live in vans and those sorts of things um but oftentimes at least at least in this community it, the working class person is um, an immigrant family from mexico who is often working you know two to three jobs and it's constantly being forced into new housing because they're being priced out mm. can i just piggyback on that for one second i'm so fascinated in the way justin just described that and it, it made me think which i've also thought in, in reading his work I mean, there's two things. One is these are the archetype that they're alluding to is also a masculine one, right? And these are mostly men because there's not that many female billionaires or even ultra wealthy people, though I'm sure many of these men have wives, but they're not the you know main thing. Whereas about two thirds, or I can't even remember, I think about two thirds of the people I talked to uh, were women. And I would say that the corresponding thing among both male and female people who I talked to but maybe especially women is the idea of like the fam, the normal family, right? So it's like, we just, you know, we're just at home having dinner with our kids. We're not going out to fancy restaurants. You know, we're teaching our kids good values and we're giving them like, you know, just what they need, the kind of basics of a good education. And so there's this way of like framing all of this stuff, which I think they really want to believe that this is true. I don't think that they're lying certainly not consciously, um, they want to feel like they have a reasonable lifestyle. And so to the extent, you know, Justin's describing the kind of appeal to this like trope of the Western, you know, cowboy slash ski bomb or whatever, that's almost classless, right? In a certain way that's, and that's like kind of frontier pioneering guy. And my, the, the equivalent of, of that with these people is this kind of family thing. And the other thing I want to point out that I think is so important is the way that both of these groups of people that we spoke to are alluding to aspects of their lifestyle as justification. So like I wear Wranglers or, you know, I shop my people would say like, I shop at TJ Maxx. Um, you know, I shop at Costco. Like I'm not, I'm not one of these horrible people who thinks about money all the time. And so they're appealing to an idea that as long as you kind of perform your wealth appropriately, right, you inhabit it appropriately, you wear the right clothes, you're not ostentatious and you're not obnoxious and rude and you don't think you're better than other people, then it's okay for you to be, you know, a billionaire. So it's not at all about how much you have, right? It's about how you act while you're having it. Mm. And that I think is a really important, like, it's a fundamental piece of the justification of inequality in, in the U.S. The, um, the whole time I was really reading both of your books, actually, I kept coming back to this quote I had had. I'd interviewed um, Rhiannon Giddens, who is a bluegrass musician, African-American bluegrass musician. Um, and she had taught, she has done a lot of work on the African-American roots of bluegrass, African roots of bluegrass, um, and was talking about how she was very frustrated whenever she would bring up her, her work on, on the, the, this history. A lot of people would say, well, I'm not, I'm not this, or I'm not that. And she would always push back like, I don't really care what you are. I'm, I'm just saying this is what it is. And it's, it's very interesting kind of the, um, I don't know if I want to posit too much of an equivalency here, but there is an interesting connection. I feel like in the way that people associate their personal behavior with issues that are just much more systematic and systemic and, and we just aren't very good at taking things impersonally seems to be one of the, the large morals of, of both of your works in all honesty. Um, and I think also another thing that surprised me, I just curious for both of your thoughts on this was that both of the, the, the sub sets of subjects you interviewed, the way they behave also seemed in some ways for some of them, at least to be motivated to a peculiar degree by fear, which I think is not something people without millions and millions of dollars would associate with millionaires or billionaires. You know, you would think you have money, it's it's made, and I, I don't really have that much to be afraid of. Um, but Justin, I know a lot of the people, some of the people you talked to who went out to Teton County in Wyoming, you know, were afraid of a government, a, a, a socialist government would take over, take their money. They saw it as this kind of end of days place to retreat to. Rachel, I know that some of the people you talked to had this interesting phobia of losing their jobs and maybe a medical bill would come up that would just wipe them out in, you know, X number of years. Like we only have enough money to live for, for a year under something like that, which was so, so, so peculiar. I'm really just curious, a very open question for both of your thoughts. I mean, 
Is there just a large amount of actually surprising maybe financial illiteracy among the wealthy people you spoke to in just the actual day-to-day realities of living with money? And that maybe, you know, I don't know, just an inability or uh, not being experts at understanding how much money it actually takes to live day-to-day and that misunderstanding translating into an inordinate amount of fear. Um, And if either of you have thoughts on that, that's just a very open question, frankly. Yeah, to your question about fear, I mean, I was just reading a report yesterday that has some anecdotal information that the COVID Zoom boom, where people are fleeing to the West, especially smaller communities in the West, is is partially in response to fear, you know, civil unrest and the protests over the summer, um, also obviously induced by COVID, and you can work from anywhere, and and people are getting away from the cities, Um, but there was some fear about civil unrest. Some folks I interviewed, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, which was was really interesting to me. And they were folks, oftentimes, who are coming from California, um, high tax, uh, liberal environments. That they said they felt more comfortable in places like Montana, in places like Wyoming. Um, Teton County is actually a blue county. It's the only blue county in Wyoming. I wouldn't call it overly progressive. Um, but it, it did feel more at home for folks um, from some of those more um, progressive areas in California. And so they felt like it was a better place to raise their children and that um, they were sort of you know, getting away from, from the coast in a sense. Um, the irony, though, is those places are becoming bluer um, with each day, too, as more people move in. Yeah, I would say on the financial literacy question, no, I don't think it's a question of financial literacy. I mean, most of the people that I talk to either work, you know, many of them work in finance or their spouses or they did or if they're women or their, you know, partners do. Um, there is definitely a tendency for men to manage the money. So women are often, this, especially the sort of stay-at-home moms of like high earners in finance, Um to not really pay attention to it. But I think that both the not paying attention to it and the kind of articulation of risk that you were um, alluding to in terms of like somebody might lose a job. I do, I think that genuinely there is some fear about that because it's true that there's, you know, volatility in these highly paid industries, but it also is, I think, kind of comforting to imagine like we're not that secure. I mean, even though they don't feel comfortable feeling like that, but it means you're not that rich, right? It's another way of sort of saying, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not the people with the private plane. We're not billionaires. Like we still think about money. We, my husband might lose his job. Um, we still have to be careful. That's a, that is still part of that appeal to the kind of middle-class, you know, American work ethic, Protestant ethic thing that, that a lot of them are, are doing and trying to be normal. So that, that's another kind of function of that. I also yeah. want to just say something about the, um, the, question that you raised, Matt, about taking it personally, because I I think that's almost the kind of linchpin of this whole issue is that people get very defensive. And you see it now also in, you know, all this talk about white supremacy and race, you know, structural racism. It's like, well, I'm not a racist. I'm not a bad person because I have money. And it's the question for me is like, well, yeah, fine. You know, great. <laughs> like, What would it mean if we didn't it wasn't so much are you a good or a bad person, but what are you doing in a system that is, you know, producing harm and violence and suffering for, you know, the majority of people? And what might be in it for you, rich person or white person, or usually both, um, in like having a system be another way, right? Why, why do we have to get so defended about our own prerogatives in in the you know these privileges that we have um instead of thinking like "Eh, it's not really my fault that i'm benefiting from this system and actually maybe it would be better for everybody including me if this you know we had better wealth distribution for example Mm. rachel one of the um the quotes from your book that really really stuck with me was um you write you interviewed um a woman named zoe and um you wrote in in your book zoe Zoe knows she is privileged in relation to her domestic employees and that matters to her to a certain extent because they see her lifestyle because they see her lifestyle rather than because they belong to a larger group of less privileged people she sees them because they see her and you were writing about how she you know gave them a, a good wage and good benefits and she said she she said she treats them well 
And that phrase, she sees them because they see her stuck with me in this strange way. Because at first I was like, that's an interesting idea of maybe a solution to some of these challenges. And at the other end of the spectrum, I thought, I don't, I don't think that's a, a practical thing to say, let's just have everyone interact with other people in different classes day to and they're on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I was really interested for both of you in the role that um, sight and or lack of sight played in um, the wealthy people you interviewed erecting the imaginaries that they had in, in their brains. Rachel, do you want to start? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that woman because when Justin was talking about the, you know, billionaires being like, I'm best friends with everybody, you know, I'm like, have a beer at the bar with whoever. Um, and like, I also don't see class, right? That I was thinking about how much that's a, it takes work, right? It's a choice to, to say that. Um, I think that there's some, you know, literature, we kind of imagine like, oh no, of course we only compare ourselves to people who have more than we do or who are the same as us. But I don't think that's true at all. I think there's a psychological labor that goes into like reframing class difference between us and people we never see, us and people who we see at the bar or who, you know, clean our boots or whatever at the ski lift. Um, and that woman also said, we live in a bubble, meaning she and her husband, and we never see anybody who's different from us. And I said to her, what about the housekeeper who's literally like 10 feet away during the whole interview? And she was like, oh, well, that's different because we treat them really well. And that was where I started thinking about like, okay, so these people are, you know, have this different relationship to you because they see you and they're part of your life. And the whole, you know, domestic worker thing is a whole another giant can of worms. But basically, I think that the, you know, thinking about who we see in our daily lives and who these people see and not just who you see like with your eyeballs, but who you see psychologically, who you understand to be related to you and who you have meaningful relationships with, I think is super important. And I actually do think that if more, you know, the the people we conventionally call upper middle class who are usually more upper class, you know, people in the top 10 and 5%, and certainly the 1% had more meaningful relationships with people in different classes, I think our politics around this would be totally different. Hmm. Yeah, I'll add that. I'll add too, Rachel. That's so fascinating, and and it's for me too. It's it's not just who they see, but also in in the setting in which I did my work, it was who they almost wanted to be, in a sense, and um, which again involves this romanticizing of a certain way of life. Um, in especially in the West and tied to, you know, these, again, these masculine tropes, but also tied to like recreation. And, you know, in my in my talk in Telluride two days ago, um, somebody asked a question that was similar to this. And I was, I was talking about what it means to be a local and and the highest compliment you could pay somebody, uh, especially a, a, a recent wealthy transplant is that they are a local or, or you can acknowledge them in that way. And, and it's almost the worst thing you could say is that you don't belong here or that you're othering them in that sense. And so I don't think it's just, you know, who we see and who they're nice to and, and, and how that relates to their family and how they raise their kids, but also kind of who they emulate in a, in a weird way. Um, and I don't mean weird in a normative way, but in a, in a sort of strange way that they are emulating those who um, have much less than them and that who they think are you know happier because they're not um, tied up in this, this really um, fast paced life or a really stressful career, um, which, but in reality, they usually are because again, housing issues and, and all sorts of other problems in paradise. I have to say, um, also reading both of your books really drilled into me this conviction in a peculiar way that the wealth and inequality crisis in the United States that we hear all, you know, all these numbers about all the time, in a strange way at its heart, is a crisis of imagination. It's like we're not able, A, we're not able to just imagine the lives of other people in such a way that just convinces us that we need to change our politics to just get to a better place wealth and inequality-wise. Um, but also... And I don't know, I kept coming back to this idea that it's almost like no one, really wealthy people and people without a lot of money, just aren't able to actually just imagine the entire landscape. Like there is so much money flowing around in so many complex ways that we're all just kind of in this ocean of data and information that we can't quite conceptualize. And and because we can't actually understand it and convey it in and imagine it, 
we can't actually like change our social behaviors and we're just we just end up with a lot of hypocritical situations and i like both of your books show these moments where really people have intentions and then they do the opposite of those intentions and in some ways it feels like that hypocrisy is like the result of just our inability to imagine a world where we can enact our intentions in in a way that that allows them um to happen and I guess, I guess what I would say is maybe if there's anyone listening in college who wants to be a humanities major, that might be the solution to all of this. <laughs> I'll jump in there and just add that I, I totally agree. And I think that what Rachel's book does so well, and then what I tried to do in my book as well, is that um, pushing back against becoming bitter at certain individuals and their moral failings. And I've given a lot of talks on this book and um, people often are asking me questions about certain individuals or they'll kind of chuckle at some of the things that are going on in the book that are actually very serious. Um, and that's because I think it's just this, it's a strange topic that people um, have a hard time discussing. It's a hot button issue. Um, there's all sorts of like rich and famous culture wrapped up in it. And so we, we really do focus on like, the moral failings of just Jeff Bezos or someone, you know, named the person rather than focusing on, you know, policies, focusing on the systems and how we can change those systems to alleviate some of the problems that we face. But I just think we do lose our way when we fixate on these individual failings. And I don't want to put words in Rachel's mouth, but um, it seems like that's the approach both of us really try to take in this book. As, and I think it's much more valuable when it comes to policy too. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's totally right. And I think for me, the you know, the, it's not only about focusing on individual moral failings, it's about, which is certainly part of it, it's about thinking about what does it mean in our culture to be a good person, right? Especially a good rich person or, you know, a good white person. I sometimes think this is a little bit easier for, you know, to understand it's like a good white person, like never talks about race and race doesn't matter. And we're all colorblind, you know, all the stuff that's now very commonly critiqued. Similarly, a good rich person never talks about money, never treats anybody differently based on money, never thinks that they're better than other people because of their money, uh, never, you know, spends in these ostentatious ways, is never lazy, greedy, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a whole list of entitled is sort of the the catch-all word for like the bad way to be as a rich person. And so I think what you're talking about, Matt, is, you know, what you're seeing as a failure of imagination in some ways is like a, a giving in to cultural ideas about worth that actually don't make anybody happier, right? And they do, they're related to, you know, decades of uh, cultural pushing from the right about individual freedoms and the importance of individuals and, you know, individual hard work and individual blah, blah, blah. Um, and the idea that we can have sort of, you know, communities where people could be safe and their needs could be taken care of. And, you know, it's just, and when you start thinking about how much wealth, you know, yeah, we're constantly talking about billions of dollars. Oh, sorry. That's my outside <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Welcome to New York. Um, you know, that's, it's almost unimaginable, these amounts, right? The amount of money that any of these individual billionaires has, you know, could make everything so much better for so many people. And it seems so kind of culturally impossible for us to imagine it. And then one other thing I just want to say following on what Justin said is that talking about it is really critical, you know, and thinking about the reasons it makes us uncomfortable, you know, not just rich people, but non-rich people too, to talk about money, um, but I think especially people who don't want to see themselves as rich, but who do have a lot of you know money, have economic choices, they never want to talk about it. And if that's you, you know, think about why that is, right? Like, what's what? What is our silence holding in place? Um, and how can we kind of break that silence and start to change some of these cultural patterns? Listeners, if you are just tuning in, this is Off the Record. I'm Matt Hoyce from the Kodo News team. Tonight, we are chatting with Rachel Sherman, a professor and chair of sociology at the New School for Social Research, and Justin Farrell, an associate professor of sociology at Yale University. Both have written books about wealthy people, affluence, and um, really trying to think about how we think about being rich. If you have a question or a comment, send us an email to news at koto.org or give us a call 970-728-4334. We're on this topic of um, talking about it. Talking about money is part of some sort of a solution. Both of you, you both just had a lot of conversations with really, really rich people. What did you both learn about how to talk about money? 
with really, really rich people? Or just do you have tips about having these conversations since you both did it um, professionally for quite a bit? So for me, I entered into these conversations almost through a back door, so to speak, because I was focused on uh, the environment. I was focused on the West and the way I was able to have these conversations. We would talk about, you know, their house in, near Yellowstone or their favorite hike. And then we would get into all sorts of other issues that I had on my interview guide about wealth and um, their, you know, their own personal feelings about their own wealth, how that impacts how they relate to people in the community. We talked about income inequality. We talked about, you know, the housing crisis across some small towns in the West. And so it was almost indirectly. And I knew that if I came at it directly, that it, it just wasn't going to happen or it was going to mm. be somewhat awkward. But it, it took about you know half hour or 40 minutes or so before we were both comfortable with each other to ask those those difficult questions. Um, but that's where I think the value of qualitative research really lies in that it's also an art form of sorts. And it really requires skill and it really requires practice to be able to dig into those issues with somebody who you may have never met before other than setting up the, the interview. And um, so I think that's really, again, reveals the importance of this kind of work and to to really root it in those conversations and, and, and has so much more value than just these sterile economic reports that we see you know, almost every day. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And just even, you know, the conversation itself and then reflecting on the difficulty of having the conversation, right, which is not something you can ever have in the, uh, like in a number. Um, I would say, you know, it was hard for me to find people to talk with. And it took me a long time. I talk in the, in the appendix to the book about, you, know, you can't just go up to people and say, like, I'd love to interview you because you're rich. And I'd like to know how you spend your money because nobody wants to admit that they're rich and talk about that. Right. Um, ultimately, what I ended up doing was talking to people who had carried out a home renovation of some significance, which meant that they were wealthy. You know, it meant that they owned their home and it allowed me to talk about lifestyle issues beyond just like, you know, only money, money choices. And I found that, you know, like Justin said, you it takes a little time to get into that. And but once people start talking a little bit about amounts of money that they spent on their renovation, for example, then it's that sort of opens a door for talking more about numbers. It, it's very hard for them to say numbers often. Hmm. Um, and I will say that some people were really but very few people ultimately were really resistant in the sense of like, I refuse to tell you, you know, how much I paid for X or Y. Um, sometimes they, I could tell they were kind of lowballing me on some things and I would go check like the, you know, the price they paid for their house. And it would turn out that they underestimated it by, you know, 20%. Um, and then I could say, well, why don't you want to tell me? And then you have a really interesting conversation about what it means to, to reveal that, right. Which is actually more important than the number itself. And then on the other hand, there were people, especially women who would say, you know, it was very cathartic to talk about this with you. I've never said these numbers aloud to another person besides my husband. Um, you know, it's it's a relief to to actually talk to someone about this. So I think to the extent that, you know, people listening to this program might not be doing research on these topics, but might be interested in having these conversations. I think starting these conversations, you know, with your close friends or your family is a really good exercise, you know, like what do you have to lose, right? And so if you can think about it, talk about it with people who are, who you trust, um, I think that, you know, can actually be super beneficial. Mm. This is something that someone said to me, one of my respondents said, this is the kind of thing I literally think about it every single minute of every single day, right? Like how much is it okay to spend on a second home? Or, you know, where am I gonna send my kids to school? And how much can I buy, you know, spend on a pair of shoes or whatever? Um, and I never talked to anybody about it besides my husband. I'll add too, you know, we, we all need to get used to talking about this. It's not just the wealthy. Um, and it's similar to race as the issue of race, as Rachel keeps saying, you know, uh, whenever I give a talk on this book, the first question I get every time, and I got it in Telluride two days ago, <laughs> the first question I always get was, what did they think? You know, and there's this, there, there's this kind of concern that, um, I upset them or that it was awkward or that they're going to come back um, and, you know, find me or something like that. Or they say, you know, you were, th you were thrown into the lion's den at this talk in Telluride or in Jackson or wherever it is in the sense of, again, it just, 
think reveals how awkward it is for all of us to talk about it. And that includes wealthy people and non-wealthy people and that we really need to get this out in the open, like a lot of other issues in our society. Mm. I, um, Rachel, I keep coming back to one of the quotes, one of your interviewees said something like, you know, I'd rather talk about sex than talk about this. Like I would sooner tell you if I masturbate than how much I spend on certain things. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know, just things like that are so like, wow. And it, it does make sense though. I mean, I think about it every, every minute of every day and I don't talk about it with anyone kind of a thing. Um, which also makes me wonder how much, um, mental trauma comes from that, but I imagine that's a much different discussion for a much different book. Maybe, um, Justin, there's not much of a graceful transition to this, but I really do want to ask you, especially since we're in Telluride, it's a nature place. One of the interesting threads of your book, we could have talked about it another hour on this is the idea of conservation and wealth, how the wealthy use conservation, um, to justify their wealth and also actually peculiar ways to increase their wealth. Can you just briefly talk about um, your findings on how conservation strangely becomes a tool for financial accumulation in for your interviewees? Yeah, so there's a lot of talk about environmental philanthropy and, and many of the interviewees would get involved in environmental issues after they moved to town or if they'd been there a long time already. And I show the ways that they do leverage conservation and, and nature itself for their own benefit. So there are handfuls of, of ways this happens. Um, oftentimes it's you know more generally to preserve an elite experience of nature, um, whether that is you know buying a home in a certain area, but then putting it under conservation easement. And conservation easements are a lucrative way to claim a, a massive tax break, depending on the value of your land, often under the banner of altruism. Um, but don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of conservation easements, and they're, they're very important. But we often don't think about the ways that they're uh, beneficial for certain people, especially people who have uh, the money to buy um, very valuable land. And then another way is, you know, just it, conservation often serves an elite social function, you know, in places like Telluride. So it offers social rewards for being involved in the conservation community. But these are often very non-controversial uh, aspects of conservation, um, like save the moose was kind of a big thing in Jackson that really more signaled one's status or prestige in a community rather than actually doing conservation work that's needed, such as, you know, work on global environmental issues like climate change, um, especially. And so they would often avoid those political um, issues that would kind of put them in choppier political waters and would be, you know, maybe not conform to their politics as well. And then there's the whole issue, uh, finally, of, of conservation and how it relates to you know, home values mm. and, um, you know, opposing development on the grounds, you know, of conservation, which it depends on the issue and where and, and what and why. But um, oftentimes that can, again, um, really benefit them financially. And so if I can just hop in there for one second, I know we're running out of time. I just want to say I think that analog to conservation, and Justin talks about this in the book, is philanthropy more generally, right? So that, you know, conservation is serving these weird ideological purposes as well as material purposes. And that's true of, of philanthropy, you know, most, the vast majority of conventional philanthropy, um, which also, you know, offers tax breaks to philanthropists, to people who are giving money away, helps them feel good about themselves. Um, and often like literally does nothing to mitigate any social problem at all. Hmm. We got a um, call from a listener who had a question, and either of you can feel free to jump in on this if you have thoughts. Their question was, how do the rich feel about taxes? Do they realize it's the best way to balance things? And I'm curious if either of you have thoughts on that from your conversations. My respondents often would avoid that question and would um, talk about philanthropy, and they would talk about the, um, that this is the most you know generous community around and name all the different ways that they've given money or sponsored a scholarship for a child in school. Um, and this is especially salient in Wyoming where there is no state income tax, there's no corporate tax. And so uh, it's essentially a tax haven, um, an onshore tax haven for a lot of these people. And so um, that was sort of a third rail, especially in Wyoming. Mm. 
I would say the people I spoke to, you know, the more progressive people will say that they think that taxes on the wealthy should be higher, although they those people are not representative. I mean, speaking of generalizability, um, I think that the, you know, the important dynamic is for a lot of people who feel that they have, quote, earned their own wealth, who have accumulated wealth through work, although they're usually class privileged to begin with. Um, they think of it as their money and they want to spend it as they like. So they imagine that taxes and philanthropy, as Justin sort of just said, are kind of equivalent. And so they should be able, because they're smart, you know, they should be able to use their money as they want and not give it to the government, which is just going to, you know, waste it or do something stupid with it or whatever. Um, so there, the idea that the state is a reasonable redistributor of wealth, I think, is is pretty uncommon, even though a little more common in the population that I studied than than usual. And you do see that the project I'm working on now is about wealthy people who are really trying to address systemic problems um, in kind of radical ways. And some of those people are the people who are advocating higher, rich people advocating higher taxes on the wealthy. Huh. Out of curiosity, how many of those people are children of really wealthy people who inherited compared to, I don't know, people who earned it, quote unquote? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's a whole field of this, like progressive people. I would say that the people, one of the major organizations on the tax thing is the patriotic millionaires and patriotic millionaires who advocate for higher taxes on the wealthy, among other things. And I think most of their members are actually people who have accumulated their own wealth. And the thing is, working class people who or you know, middle class people who became wealthy, they have an experience of other people not becoming wealthy who are also working class, right? I mean, I'm sure Justin has this in his own life, right? Like they know that not everybody becomes wealthy. So the, the kind of myth of meritocracy often doesn't work for even people you would think would totally believe in it because they themselves have made it because they've seen other people not make it that they know are smart, might be there in their own family, right? That they know have intelligence and a strong work ethic. So I think that, and, and but the patriotic millionaires people are often older. So they've had the experience of a redistributive state that actually did stuff instead of the, you know, sort of appallingly pathetic state that we've had since the eighties. Hmm. Um, that also the equivalence of taxes equals philanthropies. That, that is such an interesting um, point also. <laughs> um, gosh, we are almost out of time and I always hate that these things go so quickly because we could have talked for another hour. I, I truly believe. Um, but we're kind of inching into this solutions realm. And I also feel like it's such a huge problem that we're not going to solve it in the last three minutes of a radio program. Um, but as you both think about, you've both been dwelling in problems for quite a while. You can't do that without thinking about solutions, even in the back of your minds. Um, so just at this point in 2021, it's been a while since both of you published your books. How are you both thinking about solutions to these problems, even maybe ideas you haven't published yet, maybe even? Um, but right now, at this moment, where are your minds going when you think this is what we need to do to get to a better place? Justin, I'll start with you. So I've been thinking a lot about, um, from a more cultural, philosophical level, about, you know, at the community level, what, how do we define community? Um, and especially in these small town communities that I've studied and will continue to study and that are rapidly changing, you know, with COVID and the influx of wealth into the West, the numbers are, are quite staggering. But looking at a community and saying, you know, what should it look like? Um, who should be included? What gives it character? And, and starting with those questions and with those goals and then working backward from there. Um, so asking, you know, does extreme rural gentrification help these communities flourish or not? Um, I know that's, you know, at a high level, but I do think we need to start there with the conversation about wealth. And we must talk about that more. And um, political leaders and elected officials need to feel comfortable talking about it as well. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think talking about it more, challenging these kind of cultural patterns about who we imagine deserves what and why, like really thinking about that. There's so much that sort of goes taken for granted there. Um, redefining the self-interest of people with wealth, you know, and to really think like, why would you ever need a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars or even $20 million, you know, like, what are you buying with that? And maybe it would be better to live in a world where everybody had what they needed. And so I think just starting to have these conversations is really critical on a policy front. I mean, I believe in, you know, redistributive taxation. I believe in unions. I believe in higher wages. Um, and I certainly believe in grassroots social movements. Like, I don't think rich people are going to solve all of these problems, but I think there's a cultural thing 
that that affects all of us in the U.S., you know, and, and that we're all participating in the media and politicians and so on. That's really important. And I also think we need to have politicians who are not themselves rich. Mm. Um, gosh, I wish this was part one, but unfortunately, we're going to have to end right here. Rachel Sherman is a professor and chair of sociology at the New School for Social Research and the author of Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence. Justin Farrell, an associate professor of sociology at Yale University and the author of Billionaire Wilderness, could not more highly recommend both books. Justin, I know yours is available at our local library. Rachel, I think people can order it at our local library or our local bookstore, which is a wonderful place. Um, thank you so much to both of you. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, have a great rest of your Tuesday night. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. Opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests. Join us again next week for another installment. And in the meantime, drop us a line at news at koto.org with feedback and ideas. Oh, you're